Are you tired of breaks that break the bank? Well, I'd suggest you give Underdog Collectibles a try. They're a shop run by collectors and for collectors. You'll find them breaking every Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday night on YouTube and Facebook. This week, they'll be breaking 2020 Tops Finest, 2020 Prism, and more of the hottest basketball products. Visit them at udogcollect.com. And remember, always bet on the underdog. You're listening to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute, a podcast where we discuss both the hobby and business sides of collecting. I'm your host, Mike Summer, and I want to help you buy, sell, and trade your way into a collection you'll love. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to take a walk down memory lane. In fact, we're going to take you all the way back to 1989 to 1991, kind of my junior high era, and we're going to talk about three of the Wax Pack heroes that I love to pull from my packs. These are the guys that me and my friends couldn't wait to get out of packs. For whatever reason, they were the guys that stuck with us in central Illinois. And so I thought I'd take a few minutes and kind of walk down three of those players that we just we just couldn't get enough of. And so that's what we're going to do today. Well, during the summer of 1989, there was one pitcher who my friends and I imagined ourselves to be far more than anyone else during our daily wiffle ball games. We'd play rock, paper, scissors, draw straws, flip coins, and even sometimes race down the street to see who got the honor of being this player. Whoever got that honor would take the mound, dig in, and prepare to make that ever so important first pitch. Growing up in central Illinois... You may think it was Greg Maddox of the Cubs. Nope. How about Nolan Ryan or Roger Clemens, two superstars on the national stage at the time? Nope. Well, Ricky Vaughn of Major League fame made appearances from time to time, but did he hold the crown? Uh Uh-uh. It was none other than Jim Abbott, the California Angels rookie. He was the most popular pitcher in the 61565. His story captured us like no one else, and the fact that he could overcome the challenges of being born with only one hand to become the only major league pitcher to do that just blew us away. We would watch replays of him transitioning his glove after releasing the pitch and tried to mimic the technique ourselves. His 1989 Tops and Bowman cards were the first major releases, and in our neighborhood, those two cards required more in trade than almost any player that year. Ken Griffey Jr. might have been the only other rookie whose popularity matched Jim's. After the well-circulated Tops and Bowman releases, he was included many of the harder-to-find update and traded sets. He was, however, fully present in the 1990 releases, and our binder pages were stuffed full of those versions as well. While going through a collection I recently purchased, I stumbled across several of his cards, and I found myself wondering about how his career ended up, and I was curious to discover whatever happened to him. Luckily, we have the interwebs now, and I was able to determine the following about my 1989 Wax Pack hero. Well, Jim was a two-sport athlete in high school, playing both quarterback for his high school football team, and he was a pitcher on the baseball team. He played college ball for the University of Michigan, and with me living in the heart of Big Ten country, that only added to his mystique in my circle of friends. He made his major league debut in April of 1989 and had reached the bigs without ever even playing a minor league game. He pitched for a variety of teams over the next 10 years, including the Yankees, where he pitched a no-hitter, the White Sox, and the Brewers. In 1991, that was probably his best professional season, both looking at wins and ERA. 
He was 18 and 11 on the season to go along with a 2.89 ERA, which led him to finish third in the Cy Young voting. He played most of his career in the American League in an era prior to interleague play, so batting didn't come up much. But when playing for the Brewers in 1999, he had an RBI single, which was both his first major league hit and RBI. That came against John Lieber of the Cubs. In an interesting turn of events, his second hit came just a few weeks later. It was also against the Cubs and also against John Lieber. Today, according to his website, jimabbott.net, he lives in California with his family and is a motivational speaker who focuses on the need to adapt. That stands for adjustability, determination, accountability, perseverance, and trust. Those are the tenets of the message he shares with many companies and organizations. There's a ton of Jim Abbott cards for sale on Sportlots. I think almost 400 and as many or more that you can find on ComC. Um, I still need to track down an autograph card of his to add to my collection in the near future. And I can't think of a better way to remember that summer than to spend that $10 or $20. Now, one of the things that I really enjoy about collecting cards is how they sometimes bring back long-forgotten memories. I was organizing some cards into one of my PC binders, and I came across a full page of Scott Erickson cards. I hadn't even thought about the former Twins and Orioles pitcher in probably 20 years, but as soon as I saw that 1991 Top Stadium Club card staring back at me, I was immediately taken back to the moment I pulled it out of a pack during the summer of 91. Stadium Club's cards weren't easily found in my small town. If we wanted to get our hands on the product like that, we had to get one of our moms to drive us into the card shop in the neighboring city. If we were lucky enough to make that trip, maybe once or twice a month. When my friend told me that he and his family were going to make that trip one Saturday, we were real excited. We pooled our money, and I placed my order for several packs of Stadium Club. He brought them to church the next day, and after Sunday school, it was time to dig in. I don't remember which pack it was, but I do remember sitting in the back of the van, flipping over one of the packs to open it up, and seeing that inset picture of Scott Erickson's 1990 Topps Traded Card shining through the back of the cellophane, and I was ecstatic. I honestly don't remember why I liked him so much. I mean, the Twins weren't any big thing in central Illinois, and he had no other local connections. We didn't even get Minnesota games on TV. But for whatever reason, he was the pitcher that I was after that summer. I already had copies of the basic Topps, Upper Deck, Fleer, and Donruss ones, but none of them matched the premium status of Stadium Club. I mean, they even used Kodak photography, and the package had the logo to prove it. It amazes me how some of these cards from my youth bring back those very detailed memories from 25 or 30 years ago. But there's other cards in that binder that I don't even remember having or how they got in there. Erickson made his big league debut in 1990 when he went 8-4 with the Twins and he finished with an amazing 5-0 run in September. That finish got the hype train rolling early in 1991 and Scott lived up to that hype going 20-8 during the World Series winning season. He finished second to Roger Clemens in Cy Young voting and was the first player since 1954 to win 20 games in his first full season. From 1993 to 94, he struggled a bit and the ERA jumped to over five. He only managed to win eight games in each of those two seasons. In 95, he was traded to the Orioles and started another string of five winning seasons before an injury in the spring of 2000 derailed a promising career. He played his last game as a member of the Yankees in 2006. My Erickson collection stopped about 1994, which coincided with the strike. I had actually forgotten he even played for Baltimore since those years were well into my collecting quote-unquote dead zone. 
a part of me wonders if some fans and some collectors are going to have a new dead zone of their own with the current MLB situation that we're facing. You know, I think for me, the parallel to 1994 and 95 and that next several years, I think there's going to be other people who find themselves in that same situation in the coming years. Finally, the June 1990 issue of Beckett Magazine is a classic reminder of the excitement that could be generated from the cover of a hobby magazine. Well, at least it generated excitement in the minds of all my fellow middle schoolers. The iconic Richard Noble photo was used prominently in the Nike Bow Nose series of ads, and the campaign's popularity grew, and so did the popularity of that photo. It began to make its way into posters and then naturally into a baseball card the fun-to-chase 1990 scorecard number 697 of Bo Jackson. By that summer, Bo Mania was in full swing, and the magazine just fueled the fire. The issue itself didn't feature a ton of Jackson-centered content, but it did have a two-page spread of photos and a few other mentions of the all-star outfielder. Bo was the first two-sport athlete of my lifetime, and I was thoroughly impressed. There had been some guys earlier who had played multiple sports in college, some who were drafted in multiple sports, and Danny Ainge even had some baseball courage produced prior to committing to a lifetime of basketball. However, Bo was the first who excelled at both baseball and football at the professional level. He's the only athlete who played in both an MLB All-Star game, as well as being named to the Pro Bowl team in football. The mystique that surrounded him went beyond his in-game stats. He broke bats with ease unlike Carlos Gomez, if you ever saw that video. We did the same with our plastic wiffle ball bats. He ran with power and broke tackle after tackle, and when someone broke free in our backyard football games, Bo Jackson was the obvious comparison. He even dominated Tech Mobile. I mean, come on, it doesn't get any better than that. My love for his game was mirrored by my love for his cardboard. I was trading my friends for all the Jackson cards I could get my hands on. The Tops and Donruss rookies were easier for me to find in my area, and boy was I proud of my stash when they hit 5 and $10 respectively. The Fleer version proved a little bit more elusive, and its $21 price tag made it that much more difficult to acquire. I picked up my share of the 88s and 89s, but the 90 score bow nose card was the one I had to have, and so did everyone else apparently. The price guide of the bow nose issued showed this card was $10 compared to $0.75 cents for his regular base card. I just knew Bo was going to be a future legend and his cards were going to be worth a fortune. And then came January 13, 1991. During a playoff game against the Bengals, he suffered a hip injury that ended his football career. He battled back to the majors in late 1991 with the White Sox, but he had to have hip replacement surgery the next year. He played parts of two more seasons with the White Sox and Angels, but he could just never get back to that same level of play he delivered over the course of his first four seasons. Today, those rookie cards can be found for a few bucks each, but for me, the memories they bring me are priceless. Even though I have a copy of each of them at this point, I can't help but try to work out a deal every time I see some at a local show. In fact, I was able to buy some Topps, Donruss, and Fleer for less than a dollar each uh, not too long ago. The scorecard is one of the most popular bow cards, and even as it goes up a little bit more, it became one of the more popular cards and more expensive cards in that set. His very similar 1989 score supplemental football card commands even more. It was unfortunate that such a promising young player had his career cut short by a football injury, but at the same time his football ability contributed to the level of popularity that he achieved. 
In a recent interview, Bo indicated that if he knew then what he knows now about the injury risks in football, he may have never played. At the same time, he said he has no regrets about the decision he made to play both sports. The fact that his rookie cards are still only a few bucks each, even though he peaked in popularity at the midst of the junk wax era, says a lot for how his popularity still is today and the impact that he made on a generation of fans in the late 80s and early 90s. I love Bo, and you know what? I still do. So there's a little peek into a few pages of my PC binder from when I was a kid. Even though these guys aren't Hall of Famers and probably never will be, they still hold a special place in my par- in my heart. They still bring me back to those days of junior high when I was actively collecting and my wax pack heroes were all I could think about. Do you have similar guys who hold a special place in your heart? I'd love to hear about it. Reach out at waxpackhero at gmail.com and let me know who they are. Let me know on Twitter. You can follow me at TheMikeSummer. And you can follow me on TikTok at waxpackhero as well. Don't forget to check out the Hobby Hotline, the live call-in show that we do every Saturday morning and Monday evening. We'd love to hear from you and see what's on your mind. And that's all I've got for you today. So thanks for tuning in, and I will catch you next time.